and welcome to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. Today's podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy, and can be found online at contentstrategy.com. Hello, and thanks for joining me again today. I am delighted to have with us on the podcast this week certain Mr. Scott Kuby, who is the lead content strategist at Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy that I am in charge of. Scott? Hi, Christina. Thanks for having me today. Oh, hey, thanks for being here because I made you. That's not true. I'm not actually in charge of anyone. Let's be real. So my first anxiety is this, it feels a little like re-interviewing for my job. So I just like, you know, can we have like a moratorium or some sort of truce with regards (laughs) to podcast appearances? Yes, this will not be included in your annual review. However, I will judge you accordingly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fantastic. As long as we're clear. Hey, Scott. I really want to hear about your background as a content strategist and what led you to content strategy. Sure. So I studied broadcast journalism at Drake University and was very involved in campus activities. And I was just, you know, a person who was doing all the things and got involved in a lot of projects. And I think that a combination of like being a project person and also studying communications definitely set me on the path to becoming a content strategist. Now, I have to interrupt. What kind of activities were you involved in? I mean, let's get real here. Okay. So I did a lot of stuff with the Student Activities Board. So like booking comedians and bands to bring to campus, student activity stuff related to homecoming. And ostensibly, I was supposed to uh, kind of be the student representation for athletic boosting and like booster clubs. Yeah. Like cheering on the sports teams and stuff. So that's, I feel like it's been long enough that I can admit publicly now that that part of it, I did not do a great job with because I I did not care about sports and I'm sorry. Yeah. But so a lot of those kinds of projects and then being in the journalism school, like there was a lot of activities that were available to us as students. So I was involved in the campus radio station, a lot of Folks in the Drake Broadcasting System got involved with Drake Relays, which is a big annual track and field competition. And so there's there's always like stuff going on. And one of the projects that I ended up doing that probably like most directly contributed to me starting to learn content strategy things as I went is that my friend Carrie and I started a TV show that was kind of in the style of really now what you would see on like Tiny Desk or KEXP live studio sessions where we just had bands come and play in our aging, decrepit broadcast studio below the philosophy classrooms. That's so romantic. Yeah. And it was really fun. And uh, yeah, romantic's a great word for it because it was, you know, it was just very like DIY spirit kind of thing. We had, I did all the graphic design myself, which is just awful, but you know, a lot of like blown out black and white photos and edgy fonts. And that project turned into a blog, an independent publication that I ran um, with some friends. And we recruited photographers, writers, bands, journalists, literally anyone who would give us any moment of their time for a blog that we called Rock Iowa. And I had to make all kinds of stuff to keep it powered, right? Because people would keep asking me questions about how things should be formatted. And I kept finding myself as the person who held the vision, feeling frustrated at times with like 
things just not coming in and maybe the style or, you know, I didn't have the vocabulary for it yet, what I would now call like the voice of the publication. So one of the early activities we did as a team, and I everyone kind of rolled their eyes at me, and I don't know if it helped them, but it helped me uh, as we sat down and wrote basically like a, a manifesto that has echoes of what I would now call a content strategy statement or just a strategy statement for a website. And so that was a really nice project because I learned just all kinds of different editorial things. I learned the hard way. Sorry, everyone had to work with me about how to be less of a jerk when collaborating with people, the nature of deadlines, being able to give people style guides, all that kinds of stuff. And I was also doing some of my own writing for that project and some other arts related projects. And what I found was that by doing stuff that I put out into the world. So whether it was an art fair or a pop-up show or just some sort of like tech event, I was constantly having to write about those things for other people, put them out in public. And that kind of put me on the career path because other people in the community where I was was doing all this stuff saw what I was organizing, liked how I wrote and started inviting me to write things about their projects and their businesses. And that got me started freelance. So basically, you were a content marketer is what you're telling me. A little bit. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But that's but I'm so fascinated to hear about sort of how content strategy introduced itself into your life without you knowing what it was or how to talk about it, or that that's even what you were doing. I think that there are so many content strategists who today can talk about projects similar to what you just described and say, this is really where kind of the where I, I first discovered this drive and the this skill set that led me down the path to content strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was interesting to me, and I guess I'm very grateful to have found content strategy and related disciplines like information architecture and user experience design. Because even though I was studying broadcast journalism, I knew that I didn't want to be a journalist, right? It was the classes and the stuff and the techniques that we were learning were more interesting to me than anything else that the school had to offer. But I didn't like as a career, I did not want to go run a print magazine or work at a newspaper. I think a lot of people would sort of say that too. I mean, I don't, I know so many content strategists whose degrees are in like history or psychology or theater or music or whatever, that they really say that like the skills that they learned in school, while they weren't necessarily planning to pursue that career have really, really translated beautifully over to the field. Absolutely. Great. Hey, one question that I wanted to ask you, I mean, I I have to tell you that like just hearing you talk about what you did in college makes me absolutely exhausted because I think in college, the sum total of what I did was like work in the snack bar and like moon over guys that weren't interested in me that like that was my college experience. You have continued to have just incredible kind of output in terms of your writing and your activities and ways in which you're involved in the community on top of your full-time job. Can you talk a little bit about why that's something that, that you're committed to and how you are able to kind of manage your time so effectively? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I do manage my time effectively. I think if I was, I would maybe uh, <laughs> maybe be a little less committed to some of these projects. I've always enjoyed bringing things into the world. I think if I had could re-roll my character sheet, that's not a reference for you, Christina, that's for the nerds that are listening. If I could re-roll my character sheet, I would maybe want to like, there's a part of my heart that I think wants to be maybe more of an artist or a maker or someone, you know, if I could like make grand sculptures or something like that. So I, I really like just having an idea, shaping it, 
turning it into a thing and, and putting it out into the world. And I have found, given the skills and aptitude that I have, skills and aptitudes that I have, that things like event organizing, writing, putting guides, tools, that kind of stuff together is something that I can make. And it's just, it's that very rewarding feeling, right? I, some people like to bake bread and some people like to knit and some people like to assemble models. And I, I like to kind of make, I like to bake little idea cakes and, and send them off into the universe and see what happens with them. That's, I think, a lot of what keeps me driven is that it's, it's just, it's very rewarding to me personally. And, you know, maybe to dig a little deeper, I've, you know, given my personality, I tend to really enjoy structured social interactions. I can be very introverted and shy personally, like one-on-one, but I'm always very comfortable at, say, a conference or a meetup or something like that or a board game night because the ground rules are very clear, right? I know why I'm supposed to be here. I know that I've been invited. These people are not going to be weirded out if I go up and talk to them, even though out in the world, people probably wouldn't be weirded out either, but my anxiety gets in the way of that. So creating that structure is a way for me to kind of build relationships in a network as well. Talk to me a little bit about how that feeds into your practice as a content strategist. I think one way that those experiences and those inclinations feed into being a content strategist is observing the personalities and kind of the interactions that folks are that we're consulting for have in their own organizations and you know trying to get a read on okay like is this strong-willed stakeholder like are they really your enemy on this project or is there just a disconnect and could we create some sort of structure plan a meeting have some sort of workshop a tool frame your deliverables differently like find something that will will remove that friction. And that's kind of a mental lens that I use a lot is looking for points of friction. Whether it's in you asked about productivity earlier, that's a big one for me is I it can be a bit of a rabbit hole, but I, I'm always looking for ways to just take tedium out of the work that I do. And there's that off-use quote that's I don't know if it's Abraham Lincoln or Albert Einstein, whoever probably made it up, but you know, if you have six hours to chop down a tree, spend five sharpening your axe. And that's always my instinct of like, okay, we're going to have a 30-minute conversation, but it's a very important 30-minute conversation. So let's really plan the heck out of this and make sure that everyone understands what the goals of the conversation are and what we're trying to bring, get out of it and that kind of thing. Interesting. I want to take a little bit of a turn to talk to you about a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart. You've been doing a lot of writing about it for the Brain Traffic blog, and that is content ecosystem mapping. Do you want to describe what that even is? So a content ecosystem map is a picture, usually a diagram, of all of the stuff that comprises your organization or company's content world. There are a lot of practitioners that make them in different ways. It can be kind of more list style. Some people do really illustrated sorts of things. Mine are more in the style of what you might call a concept diagram, where you take all the stuff, so a role, a team, a person, a particular channel, a content type, a rule book, all these things that are floating around in our content universe, and you draw connections between them to show how they're related. So that's what the picture or the diagram is. There's also the process of making one, content ecosystem mapping, which is one of many tools in a content strategist's tool belt for building understanding 
with everyone on the team. So, you know, if you go out into a forest with a piece of paper and a marker on a hike with some friends and you draw a map together of that experience and what you see and what the landmarks are and where the animals were, you'll have the same understanding of what's on that map. And the map is not reality, right? It's a depiction of the forest or the journey or the thing that you went on. But at least everyone who contributed to it will have the same understanding about it. And that's what's really powerful about content ecosystem mapping is that in a lot of organizations, folks don't have the same picture of reality, right? The content strategist's view of what the content world looks like is one way, a business stakeholder's view is another way, the CEO's is another way, and so on. So by diagramming, getting it all onto a canvas, making a picture that is a reasonable representation of all of that stuff gives teams a really great starting point for all kinds of other content strategy activities. So what's interesting to me is that I think 10 years ago, I could have this conversation with someone talking about a content audit where they're saying in order to get a good understanding of your world of content, you really need to be digging into your website specifically and kind of listing out all the content that's there and who owns it and where it came from and whether or not it's accurate and up-to-date and outdated. And not suggesting that that isn't still a valid exercise in certain instances, but what sorts of things does a content ecosystem map solve that maybe just a content audit wouldn't? A content audit is a fantastic tool for understanding pages, right? So I think there's a, in my mind, there's a strong correlation between an audit and a particular web site. So at a single domain name, right, awesomeco.com is going to have a thousand or 10,000 pages. And if you want to assess, like inventory and assess the quality of those pages, I think a content audit is a fantastic tool to do it. What we find often is that organizations don't just have awesomeco.com. They have that and maybe, you know, an unknown number of microsites that various sales and marketing teams have propped up over the years. Maybe there was a member portal at some time that's set up at a subdomain. Maybe there is are a bunch of channels that are kind of branded on and they're on hosted platforms. So you've got medium, social media, all that kind of stuff. And often lots of things that folks have just simply forgotten about, like the technology that makes the website work. A lot of folks have in the mental picture that readily comes to mind for them is, okay, well, we have the main website and we have the CMS that powers the website. And that's the kind of quick mental picture they have of of how their web ecosystem is powered. But more often than not, a single website, especially for a large site or a large company, is powered by all kinds of technologies, right? There might be something that's feeding in uh, customer data. Analytics is coming from another place. Product information is coming from one or multiple databases. There might be technologies that glue all of those things together. And being able to have a picture of all of that solves for underestimating the actual scope of your content reality. And that's where a lot of projects go wrong is that where the problem is or where the opportunity is with a given ecosystem or property often is not at the website level. 
right? There may very well be things that you could audit for and evaluate the content against. And okay, we want to get it up to date with the new principles or the new direction or the new branding. But some of the bigger picture things, you know, when we're talking about content models, content structure, the search and browse experience, modal stuff where users are, are coming across different devices. If you want to have an omni-channel strategy where they, a customer starts a journey on one platform and moves to another, those things are rather difficult to depict with an audit, which primarily lists web pages and criteria about those web pages. When you are creating a content ecosystem map, what are some of the big challenges that you run into? There are a lot of challenges. One of the, I think, most personally frustrating for me is just the scope of many organizations and their actual content reality. Is It is just practically challenging to actually map it all. And it's like, okay, if we're going to include all of these systems and all of this and all of that and all of the customer insight tools, like this thing is just unwieldy. So a lot of times you have to be... There's no one-size-fits-all approach as to what exactly goes into the map and the exact boundaries of it. So that's often a conversation you kind of have to have of what are we trying to learn from this? What do we most need insight into? So that can be a challenge. I think another challenge is that a lot of the relationships have never been defined previously. They were always sort of implied. So for instance, we know that the UX team, what, they do something to the website. Do they own the website? Well, no, the executive team owns the website. Okay, well, do they support the website? Well, no, the customer service team supports the website. Okay, so let's dig in and figure out and try and articulate what that relationship is. And you'll find that over and over again, which maybe is not so much a a frustration with the process, but times is kind of the point of the process is to find those holes and gaps, give you a starting point for, say, building a governance framework or articulating roles and responsibilities. That is actually a really interesting point is that oftentimes we talk about that the document or the output of the activities is not necessarily the end game, that it is in fact just the process that the team needs to go through in order to get to the alignment that allows for the document to be signed off on. Absolutely. Yeah, the alignment is critical. And that is when I've taught ecosystem mapping as a technique before, that's frequently one of the questions I will get is, how do I sell this to people, right? How do I get permission to do this? And the snarky answer that's not helpful that I want to give is you need to become the kind of practitioner that would not ask that question, which is to say that if there is mass misalignment and everyone's understanding of what's true about your content world. For instance, you, your team, your content strategy team feels way under-resourced or overburdened because stakeholders are just constantly underestimating the scope of how much work you have to do. That's not really something that you need to necessarily sell into a project plan. I think that's something you just need to do. Right, A visual is a tool that can help you tell a story. And if making a content ecosystem map gets you better aligned with the people you're working with, it's something to just dive in and do. That alignment piece is absolutely critical and I think can be a big benefit of ecosystem mapping. We've talked a lot about the challenges of large organizations and trying to kind of wrangle all of those different pieces of their content world into some sort of meaning or order. 
Where might a small organization find content ecosystem mapping a useful exercise? Sure. So I've actually done quite a few ecosystem maps for smaller organizations. And before Brain Traffic, I was uh, doing freelance UX and content strategy work, and I would often make them for newer companies or startup style companies. And what's really advantageous there is that they have not yet gotten a huge, unwieldy content footprint. So we can be a little more clever and deliberate with the map and use it more as a storytelling tool. So one of the things that I like to do is, if possible, articulate the relationship between, say, an organization and its audiences, between the audiences and the products, uh, between the products and the website, and so on. One of the common errors in thinking that I find, especially with mission-driven organizations, is that the brand kind of collapses in on itself. And it's hard for people to talk about, say, the website separately from the company that publishes the website. And they don't have the vocabulary to talk about the brand separately from the organization that the brand represents. So for a smaller team or something new that you're, you're kind of designing with a blank slate, ecosystem mapping and related concept diagramming techniques, I think can help you draw really useful distinctions and be able to or just articulate your story in a more compelling way. Because if you branch everything out, any sort of mission, vision statement, any brand values that you have, you could actually put those right onto a canvas and map them to your activities. So if you're very customer-centric, and that's uh, something that's important to your organization, as a brand value, what is that connected to? You know, What represents that or shows that? Is it a particular channel? Is it some activity that you engage in? Is it some publication that you put out periodically that might support that value? You're so enthusiastic about this topic. <laughs> it's just a joy. I, am. I, I love know, it. It's a I joy it. to listen to you talk about it. I want to ask you sort of a bigger question, which is in the field of content strategy right now, what's really exciting to you? Something that's really exciting to me in the world of content strategy is how it's increasingly converging with disciplines like user interface writing. And obviously, technical writing, I think, has, has kind of been a core competency or something closely related with content strategy for a while. But I have, I think, probably the thing I'm maybe second most passionate about after diagramming and, and map making type things is just the nitty gritty of user interface writing. I think it's a really kind of fun art form, if you will. It's a, it's a fun craft or skill. And the fact that so many organizations are becoming product companies, you know, digital product companies, whether they planned to or not, means that that's a skill that is becoming a lot more fundamental. I was consulting with one client who had a very just kind of work-a-day communications job for a nonprofit organization. Um, and she mentioned offhandedly that she was working on some Alexa skills, right? Like this is, you know, someone who previously had been writing a lot of traditional press releases that went out to newspapers and is now working on chatbots and user interface conversations, which to me is very thrilling. I was actually just in San Francisco this week at a meetup that was hosted by Airbnb, and there was so much conversation around the role of the product content strategist. And I think that the fact that, you know, some people would say, oh, it's just UI writing. But I think that the fact that that title has been elevated in so many organizations really does point to organizations 
placing a heavier value on that skill set, which you're right, it's really exciting to see. Absolutely. And the thing that I am excited about in like a super nerdy content strategy way is that my hope is that this will all come back around to making what we would think of as traditional website content and the interactions on non-chatty, non-AI websites much better. Because a part of the conversation that I think has been missing for a while in some circles is that websites have always been conversational. It tells you things or it asks you questions and you respond by manipulating components within the interface or typing things in. And that's something that I think has been apparent with the brands that have done well over time with their web presence is that the just the whole website experience feels like a pleasant interaction with a, a smart, competent customer service person. And it doesn't feel like you're interacting with a robot. And you don't have to have quirky personalities or chat bots or you know little things that are popping up and asking you questions in the style of an iMessage bubble. To do that, you can do that with any website that exists right now. And all you need is content strategy. There you go. Put a bow on that. Friends and neighbors, content strategy <laughs> is important. Scott, it is always a delight to speak with you. I feel so lucky I get to do it every day. Thanks for employing me, Christina, and for having me <laughs> on your podcast. All right. Thanks a lot for your time. All right. Thanks. That does it for this week's episode of the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. You can listen to more episodes of the Content Strategy Podcast online at contentstrategy.com. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>